The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 10. Agulian is in the groove. He's found the rhythm. He's found the flow of the course. And right now seems to have this under control. And he's on track to take the lead and take the lead with a good time. This gate here has got to put the nose to the left of the gate to take up with the inertia there so you don't roll into the gate or pile on like Matt Holden. Gullion's getting faster and faster. The light stays green. The plane is getting quicker. Gullion into the lead. And the time is rock solid. The American fans are on their feet already. 6.208 seconds. No penalties. Currently holds you in first place. Altitude. Altitude. Tower to my stretches. Release you. Runway 4 left. Wind 040 at 5. Clear for takeoff. Sea tide. Altitude is zero eyes. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Viper check. Two. I'm excited for my guest today, Michael Gullion, a good friend of mine. The audio you heard in the opening was him winning the Red Bull Air Race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in 2018. Quite an accomplishment. Michael's career in aviation is accomplished. One of the youngest guys to win the United States Unlimited Aerobatic Championship at age 27. He's a certified flight instructor. He's a Cirrus instructor. He is the guy you want to emulate in the aviation career field, in my opinion, just from his professionalism, his dedication, his drive, and even not just necessarily just aviation, but he's a business owner. A lot of things Mike has learned over the years and he's sharing just the way he conducts himself is something that I think most people would find success if they were able to figure out how to capture and emulate what Mike does. So excited for Mike to be on the podcast today. Hope you enjoy. Uh, before we get rolling, we just have a few admin notes. I'd like to thank Hangar 24 Craft Brewing out in Redlands, Orange County in Lake Havasu. They make some amazing beer out there. But one thing they've done during these times is they pivoted and they've actually made hand sanitizer. If you're in need, they ship hand sanitizer all across the United States. You can use the code RAIN10, that's RAIN10, and get 10% off your hand sanitizer order. And if you're just looking for some great quality beer and you happen to be in the SoCal region or over in Lake Havasu, you can find them at most grocery stores, liquor stores, or you can visit their tap rooms at one of those locations. Again, that's hangar24brewing.com. Go over and check them out. I'd also like to thank Squadron Posters. Not only am I a fan of Squadron Posters, but I've been a customer of theirs for about four years now. A few years back, a member of my squadron worked with the Squadron Posters design team to build a custom poster for our squadron, the 77th Fighter Squadron. After seeing the end result, I not only ordered that poster, but I ordered the posters for all my previous units as well. 
Squadron Posters is a great way to capture your memories and showcases the places you've traveled, where you've lived, and some of the amazing things you've accomplished. Check out squadronposters.com and their truly unique artwork. Let Squadron Posters custom art help you showcase and share your journey today. Use the code RAIN10 for 10% off your order of $59 or more. Also, I'd like to thank Wingman Watches, which is a veteran-owned and operated company. Their impeccable attention to detail truly shows in each one of their timepieces. They've grown and they've created some truly incredible timepieces. If your organization or group might be interested in creating a custom watch, I highly recommend you check out Wingman Watches. Their design team will take care of all the hard work from taking your concept and shaping it into something you will love to providing you a one-stop shop for your team members to purchase their personal watch. Perfect for law enforcement, fire departments, medical, sports teams, military, and any organization. Let Wingman Watch build your watch for your team today. Check out wingmanwatch.com to start your order. Mention my name to receive a discount on your group order. Or if you see a watch you already love on the site, you can use the code RAIN10 to receive 10% off your watch purchase. You'll just say something real quick. I'll make sure it's working. Test one, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one. Honestly, that's the best one I've had yet. Wow. You say that to all the boys. Yeah. Well, no, just you. You're special. Okay, you are a thanks. pilot. You are a pilot, right? I I was at one time. <laughs> well, just Mike, ask me. <laughs> I'm super excited you joining me on the podcast tonight. I know people are going to love hearing your story. Before we get rolling into it, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're doing today, and how you got there. Well, you know, like I was, uh, like I tell everybody, I thought I was going to be the next Bobby Orr hockey player growing up in Boston, Massachusetts. And then when you get to be about a senior in high school, you realize, well, like, well, I probably need about another six inches of height, (laughs) maybe about 30 more pounds. And uh, that wasn't going to happen. So um, my dreams were crushed. I was not going to be the next Bobby Orr or Wayne Gretzky. That it is what it is. So my dad was um, a flight school owner. He started a flying school in 1964. He was one of these guys that really like a white scarf guy, didn't do anything else with his life, but fly airplanes, was flying when he was a kid. Uh, Cool story. They actually, (laughs) his dad and he forged his birth certificate, which you could do back (laughs) then. So he could solo a plane at 15 instead of 16. So, yeah, really cool. And so by the time I was in high school, you know, we had this flight school going. He started in 1964. And he he was one of these guys that he's like, hey, I want you to see what we do. You know, what puts food on the table and, and hockey skates and hockey sticks in your hands and on your feet and figure out what we do. And uh, he wanted me to understand the value of a buck, right? So when I was probably, I don't know, my 15 years old he brought me to the airport and i can remember he had this white chevrolet impala with a a, a orange chevy impala with a white roof and white interior it was a classic 19 like 80s thing and this guy didn't believe in air conditioner why would you have an air conditioner when you can roll down (laughs) the windows right so we we go to the airport in this in this car remember like it was yesterday he pulls up in front of the hangar and he's like boys this is Michael. Michael, this is the boys. Boys, give him a broom. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. This is the worst summer of my entire life, right? So uh, that's how it started. And, and you know, there's, these mechanics are probably 28 years old, 30-something years old, and they just abused me for a whole summer, and I loved every minute of it, right? And because by the end of the summer, 
I was taxiing airplanes, washing airplanes, giving them as much grief as they were giving me. And I just fell in love with the whole airport scene. That oh, that's so year. cool. So, and obviously you just took off with flying. I imagine you kept doing that and did you pursue aviation in college or what, what was kind of the next steps for you? A lot of people don't probably know this. I love running a business as much as I love flying a plane. To me, it's sort of it. It's just as challenging. So uh, I quickly started to sort of be my dad's right hand in a way. My mom ran the books, made sure there was enough money in the bank to make the payroll every week. My dad was out flying airplanes and giving check rides and all that. And then I became sort of the eyes and ears on the ground, even from a young age. So uh, I started to, yes, learn to fly. I soloed at 16, got my private at 17 and all that. And then by the time I was 18 years old, I was going to college uh, locally so I can continue to work uh, at the school and then became sort of the head of all the flight instructors. And for everybody that's a pilot today and is, is going through this amazing hiring boom that the airlines have been doing for the past few years well that happens every so often and it happened in the 1980s uh and i was the kid that was interviewing and hiring all these flight instructors who would then leave the airlines with for the airlines with like 800 hours total time which is kind of what's happening today it all it all comes around and then it's and it's a cycle so i started to yes learn to fly and then also learned how to run our business at the same time. And I think one of the things that I'm probably a little unique in is that after all these years, I still love to fly today as much as I did the first day that I did it. And because the aviation business, it's a hard way to make a living. Let's, let's be honest, right? It's a, it's a pretty hard, and there's a lot of sort of crusty old guys and ladies out there and wives that are running these businesses for their whole lives. And they're, they kind of get a little bit, uh, you know, they just get hardened to the whole thing and they don't, they forget to see what the magic of flying is and all the great things. And, and I've been lucky that I've been able to, uh, keep that spirit within me. So when I get up in the morning and go to work, it's still just as magical for me as it is. And, And don't get me wrong aviation is still a business for me, but it's my passion for it that uh, makes me drive as hard today as I did even back then. Yeah, it does. And that was one thing I always told like kids when I went to speak at high schools and things like that. It's like, you have to find some kind of passion in life to pursue. Otherwise it's just a job where you're just, I mean, you're literally just waking up to punch a clock and just get through the week so you can make it to the weekend. So is that why, I mean, is it, is it the passion that drove you to be successful, to pursue, to work hard? Because your passion definitely shows in the flying that you do. And all our time together, mainly spent at air shows, like, you know, the Goulian name is, is iconic. And that is what you think of, at least what I think of when it comes to aerobatics and things like that, because of the amount of passion you brought to flying and bring still. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it, listen, it's nice of you to say that. I'll give you 20 Thank bucks you. when this Thank is you. over. Um, it's funny. I try to tell people, uh, you know, I never, I never had a goal to, 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 to be this or do that or whatever. However, I'm somebody that 
whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to do it absolutely as best as I can, right? So whether it's running our business or flying an airplane or flying an aerobatic airplane or playing golf or playing ice hockey, like I don't want to be bad at anything, right? So if I can't like, if I can't be trying to turn to work towards being a scratch golfer, I don't want to do it. I don't want to be a hacker. Like same thing for flying and all of those things. I want to try to be the best that I can, but I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I set out like, Oh, I want to win a national championship or I want to make that much money in my business. or I want to do that. It's just one of those things. Like, I don't know what I, what I would do in the morning if I didn't get up with a goal. So for me, it's all about a goal, goal thing. I need to need to set something out there and go get it right with our new aviation business. I tell all the people, I'm like, we, our goal should be to be the best in the entire country and have everybody else look to us and say, ah, that's how you should do it. Like, I don't want to be like everybody else. I want everybody else to try to be like us. And and I think that kind of like that motivates everybody else when they come to work. They're like, this is a group of people. They want to rock it. And, and I think that that also brings in really great people into your company. It's how you build something great. And, and so, you know, I, I, I'm not the best aerobatic pilot that that's ever been. Maybe I'm one of the most passionate, I think. And, and I still love it. And, and I, I look at air show flying and I, you know, I just went out practicing today in the middle of the middle of the coronavirus world, you look down at the world and you go, it doesn't look like there's anything wrong with the world from 3000 feet. And then, you know, when you, you look outside and you're like, I can't believe that this, this airplane is mine. And I get to do this. Cause when I was a 15 year old kid, it was just a, it was really just yeah. a dream. And so I feel lucky, lucky that I'm able to continue to do uh, what I'm doing today. Cause as you all know, you've been in the air show business uh, yourself. To be able to make it a vocation is a pretty difficult task. So I feel I feel lucky that I've been able yeah, to do that. Yeah, luck obviously is probably a small piece of it, but I think the biggest piece is that passion and really the hard work and that dedication that I think that you're kind of alluding to there is, I don't know. And, and that's what I wonder, is it, you know, do you get lucky, land in the right spot, you find something you're passionate about, and then you have that drive to be a hard worker and wanting to be the best. Cause I know for me, it's always been like, I never want to be the person who lets the team down. I never want to yeah. be the weakest link. I always want to be the best. I always want to push further and go faster. So I don't know. I think that's a challenge for some people. And I don't know, do you have any advice for maybe how you find that blend or how you work to that? And I, I, I think it's, I honestly think it's ingrained, right? I, I didn't know that I had some coaches in high school and hockey that uh, were pretty influential in the way that I looked at life and things. And I think of my, I look at my dad and how he dug deep to try to make a living in what he did every day. And uh, you know, and I look at, when you talk about passion, I look at you right there. So there's a lot of F-16 pilots there's been a bunch of Thunderbirds, but when you say to people that have been in the air show business for the last 10 years, hey, do you know Rain? Everybody knows Rain, right? And um, the reason they do is because I think you brought a passion to the performance 
that a lot of other people didn't do. A lot of other people were awesome, but to me, the greatest aviators are able to show their passion and their love for what they do and their personality through a machine, right? And that's that's hard to do because you're you're a couple of thousand feet or a few thousand feet away from the audience. But if you can make a, a machine behave in such a way that like, listen, you could put a thousand, gray, you know, gray F-16s on the ramp and you can have a thousand different demo pilots. But as soon as you took off and you did the, the takeoff that you did, I'm like, oh, that's rain. I get it. Right. Like I can see it. And and you don't know that you have it, but you just have it. And I think it's the same with me. I, I want, if I'm in a purple extra or a yellow extra or a green extra, I want somebody to stand at Oshkosh and go, oh, that's Mikey G flying because they can tell. And like, and it's all of my life experience that's put into the flight controls of this airplane to make a statement in the sky, right? And I think that's that's the thing that we want to, that people want to do, that they should try to make a statement in their life with whatever it is that they're doing. Um to be able to make a statement with what you are passionate about, it's a special gift that people are given. And I think not, not a lot of people really understand their passion in life and are, are given the opportunity that we have been given to be able to, yeah, to absolutely. do that. Now, do I have to give you $20 back? Yeah. Yeah, you do. <laughs> no, I think. <laughs> no, actually 40 yeah. bucks. I think. No, I, I mean, your words couldn't be truer. I think, we're definitely both fortunate in the sense to be able to share our passion, be able to go out there and do our passion and, and share it with people and try to do the best of our ability. But, um, you know, it definitely, I would say it takes a lot of hard work and dedication. I know you and I, you would agree with that as well. Yeah, what, um, sure. so it's kind of along those lines, right? It's not necessarily an easy road and particularly right now, as we're recording this the coronavirus is obviously rampant, uh, and it is a big deal for, everyone across the globe, but you're a business owner. So what are some of the challenges you're facing now with your business? How are you addressing those? How are you, you know, persevering and pushing through this? You know, it's a, it is definitely a scary time, right? As a small business owner, um, you, you never, you, you think you do, but you never ever have the opportunity to build up a war chest of money. Like, some of the larger corporations do. So you're always, you know, you're always looking at the bank and your bank balance and you're always looking at the revenue that's going to come in and you you know, you get some sleepless nights. It it really is. And and uh that saying is if it was uh easy everybody yeah. would do it. Well, right now is one of those times, right? And, and so um it's a hit. And when I think about our air show business, especially, um, I have some sponsors that have paid me quite a bit of money for this year and there's no air shows to fly. So the thing that you're, you have to do is you have to sit down with your sponsors and say, okay, uh, we, it wasn't our fault, but that doesn't matter. We didn't deliver the product to you that was expected so we sit down with those those people and say listen we're in this together right and so i realize this is hard for our sponsor 
but it's also hard for us. But we will sort of work with them over a period of time to make sure that they're comfortable with that. So the next, it won't be the next year that hurts. It's probably the next few years that will hurt. Because when I look at, at Wheeland Aerospace and these companies, they're like, hey, it's basically a loss that we will have to try to um, disperse over a few years right. worth of involvement. So it's a few years worth of lean times and it is what it is. But again, I'm thankful just to be able to continue to do it for sure. What do you think is going to happen with air shows this year? You think we're going to have anything? Boy, I, you know, I certainly hope so. My next air show on the books is late August in Maine. And show. We, we, yeah, it's awesome, right? We could be, we're hopeful. I, I certainly hope so. I think if you think about air shows in general, they're outdoors. Can people socially distance at an air show like that? Yeah, if they want to, they can. I think they can. And um, the the military has done an amazing job of really raising the spirits of all of the people of the country and not only uh, the country, but the first responders, especially all the people that have been working so hard during this time. So I think for once, air shows have been looked upon in a positive light. So I think when you talk about America, it's there's nothing greater than going to an air show and watching people do amazing things in magical machines like airplanes. So I'm hoping that uh, a lot of people will see air shows for what it is. And it's it's an opportunity for people to go to a place as a family and be inspired. And there's not a lot of places in the country that you can say that about anymore, but air shows are one of them. And so I, I'm, I'm super hopeful that we'll be able to fly the last third of the season for sure. I would say this is a huge, it's a crushing thing for the air show industry. I mean, that's been, I mean, all the other industries go along with it, but if we talk specifically about the air show industry, just shutting the doors completely and those ramifications, like you've already alluded to, I mean, there are second and third order effects that take years to recover if they're recoverable right. at all. Um, because a lot of the yeah. other performers have the going to air shows is their primary business. So there's no other business on the side. So when you shut their only revenue stream down, uh, it's kind of scary to think who is going to come out of this if this goes on much longer. So, yeah, that's right. I, I think when you look at uh, what people don't realize is when you go to air shows, there's people that it is their sole source of income and they're not making tons and tons of money by doing it. It's a passionate business. And, you know, some of the best of the best are, you know, you think about Kyle Franklin, you think of, Rob Holland, you think of Matt Yunkin and all of these guys out there that are really, they're doing it because they love it. It's their full-time business. And so uh, it's a tough spot for them and, to be in. And I hope the airshow industry actually supports them in a time of need because they should. With like Matt Jolly, Rick Peterson, Rob, you know, those guys getting together and actually doing this socially distant air show was pretty incredible. I think they raised like $25,000 for air show performers, yeah. which is pretty cool because again, you know, when I, my short time on the, in the air show world, it definitely is a family and coming together in hard times is what, what it's all about. So hopefully the doors open back up at some of these air shows here in the fall and people can get out there and celebrate freedom and America and enjoy things as a family and we can get the world <laughs> turning again. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing how fast we could turn yeah. it off. 
I never. No, yeah. Beliefs, if you'd right? asked me, uh, what? Yeah, about seven weeks ago, whenever this kind of kicked off, it was going to happen. I was actually in China right. when it all kind of started. It was really churning up, um, and they had, you know, they'd sealed everything off in China. And I was like, we'll never do this in America, you know. And then fast forward three and a half <laughs> weeks, and you know, we were we were shutting everything down. So hopefully, it's you know, it's given us, it's gotten ahead of you know the virus and allowed everyone to adjust. And again, hopefully, it'll fizzle out. I'm sure we'll have some more flare ups, but. Now we, now we can manage it. Right. Um, but yeah, for sure shifting gears just a little bit, you used to race airplanes on occasion too. Is that correct? Yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah. I did so I think you were involved in Red Bull air race. I have to look at my notes here. Yeah. Uh, so you did some red. <laughs> hey, you should have done your research. <laughs> I didn't know. I thought saying. I had Rob Holland on for tonight and, uh, yeah. I just, oh, I see. Yeah. No, he just yeah, flies upside yeah, down. That's all. all the time. Oh, he plays a good, he plays a guitar pretty well. Yeah. So I had a scramble here when I realized it wasn't Rob Holland on the line, but, yeah. um, and Rob lives in New Hampshire. Does the internet, I don't think so. Hampshire? They're still out in the woods or whatever the code, whatever it is. Yeah. I haven't heard from Rob. I don't know. I don't know what he's doing these days. You'll have to get a can and a string and maybe connect that to Georgia. Neshua. Is that how, how do you say it? I don't know. Yeah. Ne- Neshua. Yeah. Something like that. It's hard for us Georgia boys to say that. Uh, how'd you get involved in Red Bull racing? So um, amazing enough, uh, I did my first race. It was an exhibition in Reno, and Kirby Chambliss called me and in 2004 and said, hey, this Red Bull Air Race thing is getting going. It's really cool. Uh, and they're looking for basically professional pilots from around the world that had been in world championships, so they had a bunch of rank name recognition, but also were comfortable low level, and they were sort of comfortable in their own skin because, let's face it, in the beginning, we were learning as we went, and it was pretty dangerous, right? And so uh, they want – Peter Besigny was kind of the guy – if people don't know, Peter Besigny in the 70s, 80s, and 90s was – you know, one of the kings of the world of aerobatic flying. And uh, Peter's an amazing guy. From He's from Hungary, lives just outside of Budapest. And um, Peter was in charge of it. And he basically, he almost handpicked the people to be a part of the race. And I like to tell people in the beginning, they chose people that wanted to live more than they wanted to win, <laughs> right? Because like, that was kind of the idea. Like, hey, Let's get this thing off the ground. Nobody be stupid. It's incredibly challenging flying. It's the hardest flying you'll ever do. It's the hardest flying I've ever done uh, and maybe ever will do. Um, so, but we needed to, we needed to get from point A to point B and they needed a bunch of people in the seat that were super trustworthy and responsible and professional uh, so that there were no accidents in the first bunch of years to get this thing going. And so it was really at, in that time by invitation only in, in, uh, in 2004. So I didn't, I did a, I did a flight, uh, a race in 2004 in Reno. It was just an exhibition, which was really fun. And then in 2005, I didn't race. That was the first sort of real season. And then I went to the very last race of the season and just participated in the practice events. And then, uh, in the very fall, very late fall of 2005, 
believe it or not, we set up a Red Bull Air Race track behind Kirby Chambliss's house. Was like completely surreal. So here's the Red Bull Air Race track in Kirby's backyard, which if you don't know is, you know, in Arizona in the desert. And here's a full up group of pylons. And uh, Goody Thomas, who's a, a competition pilot, and I were both invited to go. And we we flew for three or four days. And at the end, I was chosen to join the Rebel Air Race starting in 2006. Uh, and, uh, you know, sort of as they say, the rest is history from there. And, and I was with the series from 2006 all the way through uh its final year there in 2019 that's wild i had no idea so was it was it a tryout at kirby's place more or less they just invited a bunch of pilots and to see it was yeah it was a it was a tryout it was actually the uh it was the budapest track from 2005 that we flew in and we practiced this thing and you did this whole three or four days worth of flying and the hardest part of the whole thing and the funniest thing, but I think back of back now, my wife stood underneath the gate with a video <laughs> camera, which back then was not, a, uh, which was not an iPhone because the ending was, Hey, Michael, you have to hit the pylon. Huh. And I was like, uh, you want me to hit the pylon? Like, yeah, you have to hit it. Passing the course is hitting the gate. That's like, Oh man. Um, <laughs> And people remember my cap 232. I was in my Castrol cap and it took me three times to hit the pylon because, because rain, you know, like, Hey, (laughs) go fly your airplane into that thing. I'm like, no, thanks. (laughs) No, thank you. And even today, like we did a demo at sun and fun a few years ago and it was the same thing. It was my, we were doing a demo and like the first day, Kirby hits a pylon. The second day I hit a pylon and it was my day to hit the pylon and I couldn't hit the pylon. And Kirby's yelling at me on the airplane, on the radio, you jerk, blah, blah, blah. I'll do it. And he just center punches it because Kirby has no brains anyway. So that's just the way <laughs> it is, right? And um, so that was my intro to the Red Bull Air Race. Like, you're like, you, you're going to, you have to pass the course by hitting one of these things. And it is the craziest. Now, I've hit hundreds of them <laughs> over the course of yeah. my 10 years, right? I mean, I've hit so many pylons. I mean, I can't even, there's definitely can't even count, but I've never hit one off yeah. purpose. Oh, I couldn't even, like, even though you know, like, right? I mean, it's tearing away, it's filled with air, like, it's going to do no damage. Still, like, I'm not going to go purposely run into something in my plane. Mm-mm. That's only inviting bad things to happen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go jump off that bridge. Why? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, why hey, would you do no that? Thanks. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Next guy no thanks. No thanks. No thank you. Uh, I'll I'll move on. Gosh, <laughs> what made? I mean, I I'm envisioning why that was such tough flying. You're used to flying down low. I've seen you fly. What was the hardest part of Red Bull flying? What made it so challenging? You know, the funny thing is, um, flying low had nothing to do with it, right? Like it was just one of those. It's a given. You're you you're like you're comfortable down low. You don't even know it. And then we flew over the water so much that like I forgot that you get so comfortable. I forgot that we were over the water. Didn't like it didn't dawn on me. All I could see is a track and these pylons out the windscreen 
and that was it. Um, you know, starting in about 2016, and we were behind this game for a while, but we caught up in 2000, the end of 2017, and then all of 2018 and 19. We were we were the team to beat almost the, 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 all that time. Matt Hall, Martin Shanka, and myself, we were the three best teams at the end of 17, 18, and most of 19, and, and Yoshi Moroya as well um, from Japan. Uh, the flying got so incredibly technical, it was insane, right? So we would, the head of aero and astrophysics at MIT was essentially our tactician, right? <laughs> so we would get a track and he would build the perfect racing line with 17 different wind conditions. Jeez. And the, and so we would build the track on Google Earth, and then he would email me this big KML file, and I would learn every single track, all 17 of these wind conditions in a video over and over and over. And then I would go to my hangar, and I would set the track up on the floor of my hangar with, with Red Bull cans, funny enough. <laughs> Naturally. And then would, yeah, naturally. And then I would, I would draw arrows on the ground from like what the, what the wind condition would be, what the gate angles were. And so I would just walk through the thing every day for three weeks prior to a race. And then I would understand the G levels and everything else that was involved to do this. So you would get to the racetrack. And you are programmed to go. And then the first couple of days were learning. So you would, the airplane would download 180 lines of data five times per second. So everything that you could ever think of, acceleration, deceleration, indicated airspeed, true airspeed, ground speed, G levels, height, altitude, bank angle, pitch, all this kind of yaw rate, all these things. And so when I would come back, they would take the, the data card out of the airplane, stick it in the computer. Pablo Branco would, um, who was basically the coach, and he would, he would basically dissect all this and then take the data from the airplane and overlay it on the very complicated data that Steve Hall, our tactician from MIT, had created. And then we would start to we would look at that. Where was he pulling too hard? Where was it too soft? The angle was all of those things. However, that it's incredibly technical and I'm just a dumb pilot, right? So we had a thing, Pablo and I, because he's an aerobatic pilot, we had a thing. I'm like, Pablo, I can only change three things at a time, <laughs> right? So, and at, another thing was our, we also, as a team, Pablo and I both had um, a sports psychologist who would work with both of us independently. So, yep. So he, so the sports psychologist knew how I worked. He knew how Pablo worked. And then he tried to talk to both of us independently so that we would both mesh up together. Right. And so we talked to the same. And so Pablo would be like, Hey, I need you to squeeze a little more around six. I need you to let off a little more into gate seven. Whereas the MIT guy would say, I need you to be 1.5 degrees more around. Like that doesn't work. Like, yeah. Hey, Hey Jack, I'm a, like, I'm an athlete. I'm not a, yeah, I'm not an engineer, bro. Um, 
I'm not an engineer. That's the way this was. So, um, and, and that was, that was the magic. And the, the hard part about the rebel air race is that on any given weekend, three people would be close to perfect. And it was so hard to be part, like in any sporting event, whether it's golf or tennis or whatever it is, there's, there's always one person that's just a little bit better on everybody than everybody else. They're they're I hate to use this term, but they're in the zone yeah. that day, right? And so the whole thing was trying to get in the zone where it all became easy because the people you were flying against were so good that it had to be perfect. It had to be like ninety nine point nine percent perfect, and that was the hardest part about it was that you couldn't make a mistake. Yeah. And and when I say mistake, I mean like you pulled, you know, eleven G instead of eleven point five G around that court. Like point five Gs. Like, what does yeah. that mean? But that that's the difference between winning or losing. Knowing that level of detail is really impressive, and definitely you know clarifies the answer of like why it's not just flying low to the ground. Why it's it's so challenging just to go out there because it is such a pr- precise sport yeah and and the thing that you that doesn't come across on tv and didn't come is that it was essentially a psychological battle because everybody knew what you had to do right so let's let's talk about the rules so in in 2018 the rule was the g limit was 10 right but you could go up to 12 for 0.5 seconds so you were given this baby window and the reason that was given was in the day i was in the meeting we were like hey the g limit's 10 and then they said yeah but what if it's really bumpy you're like okay we'll let you have a spike to 12 but only for half a second well that was meant to be a bump (laughs) for the g meter to go up and over however we started to use that to <laughs> our advantage. So, of course, right? So what we did is our when you go through a gate, you our, our goal was to pull to 11.9 for 0.45 seconds and let off to 9.9, which reset the clock, by the way, <laughs> and then back to 11.9 and then by that time, the airplane was going through vertical and it was going to basically get – it was going to get around the corner and dissipate the G before it over G'd. And so – but now when I was – and this is one of the things that Pablo would look at is the the rate of acceleration. And when I was doing uh, – when I was in the groove at my best, flying without – just on instinct – my pitch rate was like 80 something degrees per second. So if you think about, right, like it'll go from zero to 11.9 G's in less than a second through vertical and then off the stick and back. So it was completely instinct. And the, the needle moves so fast, like you could never, you could never ever look at the needle because it was pegged before you could do it. And so, the person that would win was the person that's like, 
I have no fear. I'm going to go to that gate. I'm going to go to 11.9 and off to 9.9 and back to 11.9 and hold it all in 1.2 or 3 seconds. And like that was honestly the the difference between winning or losing. And when I was not in the groove, I wouldn't win. Like and that, that like it all came it honestly almost all came down to that is how how in the zone were you? How did you do, like you have to care only so much. And that's the thing is like, and there you go. I can, I can fly as great as I can without any reservation for any failure and win, or I can do 95% of it and come in. Yeah. And you're like, huh? Because the, the consequences of going over G is like your 10th. Yeah. Right. So it was a, it was an interesting psychological thing. And it was a very delicate balance for me all the time like i would that, that they did i went to i went to a race and before i got on the airliner Emily makins my team coordinator took my telephone my computer she took my ipad and i was completely isolated for like 11 days so i would go from the airport to my hotel i had a book i would read a book i would go to sleep i would get back up i was disconnected from everything i had a phone i had a, a race phone which had basically my team's phone numbers and my wife, and that's that. It. Uh, that's probably why you're one of the okayest pilots I know. <laughs> okay, I'm okay. My daughter thinks I'm. He's not okay, very at good. best. <laughs> no, I mean it's that level of detail, that amount of you know dedication to it that separates first place from second place and first place from tenth place, and not everyone has that. <laughs> I mean, the margins there are so small; like it, it is phenomenal to me, and really impressive. Yeah, and I miss I you know it's funny when the race stopped because I was done with traveling like you doing all the traveling that you do now you know yeah. it gets tiring right you're like oh my god and I would sit in a hotel in Abu Dhabi and be like remember how tired you are remember this when you get home remember this when they want you to do it next year like you can barely raise your arms off the bed you're so tired with jet lag but now I sit back and I'm like man I miss. I miss the nerves of race day, right? I miss the nerves of being dry in my mouth for like 10 hours, knowing that like today is the day I've got to race. It's funny. Here's a simple question I probably should know, but like the logistics of it, getting the plane there. And then what are you doing like with your body as far as like adjusting your body clock, getting on that? I know you probably have a certain, you know, five or six days probably to warm up to it, I would imagine. But how is that process? That's that's not a small muscle movement to move a whole team and a plane. To- no, it was so. Uh, every race we went, there were two seven forty sevens. Usually, um, I can't remember the name. Uh, Atlas Cargo would move the stuff. Usually, if yeah. not, then it was Emirates, and with the the nose loaded um, airplanes, the triple seven or the seven four seven, and they would move the whole circus from one country to the next so our team would like we would let's say we finished a race and i mean the engine is still bubbling hot and warren my technician he's taking the airplane apart they're like out wow. and they had no wasted movement by 9 30 10 o'clock on sunday night um the airplane was basically apart and then by about 10 o'clock the next morning they put it into a box so the wing went into a thing that looks like a huge guitar case. Same thing for the tail, and then you shrink wrap the air shrink wrap the airplane, 
and then strap it down to the floor of this of what they, we call a cookie sheet. You might know that in FedEx language. So yeah. uh, it became the cookie sheet, and then they would they would take that and load them into the seven four seven, and off they go. And then we'd come somewhere, you know, four thousand miles away from where the last race was, and there's my airplane, just like we left it, sitting in the same hangar, ready to be reassembled. It was magic. Yeah, that's impressive. That no small feat. Like that's no. What uh, do you got? I mean, any insight that you could share for why it all ended, or was it just cost prohibitive, or like what? What do you think? You know, I it's. I mean, the, I think that the model was a little bit broken. I think they they wanted to sort of basically, if you look at the Rebel Air Race, it was very much modeled after Formula One. So the way our timing and scoring sheets were and the way the whole thing went and the weekend's progression and the terminology in the race, it was very much Formula One. And I think the the thing is Formula One has a hundred year head start, right? Yeah. And so it grew organically. And so uh, the way the air race worked is they, they looked to the cities to pay the, uh, to pay a host city fee as opposed to, uh, fans and beverage and food sales and sponsorship and things like that. So I think in an economy of today to ask a city to pay multi millions of dollars to host event, an event, it's pretty, it's a pretty difficult ask. It's even difficult for formula one to do today. Yeah. Right. Um, if you look on the formula one schedule, races are coming and going and it's, and it's some of these emerging countries Azerbaijan and places like that that are actually hosting the races because they want it for tourism. Um, yet Red Bull wanted to go to establish, they wanted to go to mainland Europe. They wanted to go to the United States. They wanted to go to Australia, places like that, which already were established and didn't need that. So I think the, the racing is, is the most purest form of aviation that you can find. I hope it comes back. There are some groups that are trying to put it back, but it is no small task, right? Yeah. It's a, it's 200 people traveling around the globe. Uh, it's a big deal. And, and, you know, all I can say to Red Bull is, is thank you. Cause it was, they literally showed me the world. They gave me some of the best memories that I'll ever get from flying in the places that I flew and what we did uh, and the way that they treated us was amazing. So all I can do is hope that it continues, whether I continue with it as a pilot or as a coach or as a team owner, I don't really know. Uh, but, uh, I still have my race plane. It's actually being assembled in Florida and it's going to come up to, uh, Pablo's going to keep it in his hangar in New York and he's just going to keep it exercised. And so we'll see what happens Good. in the future. Well, I hope yeah. it comes back. I mean, it's such an incredible sport that I enjoyed watching. And I know so many people other, you know, really enjoyed it. So yeah, hope, it was fun. Hope, hopefully it'll happen. What was the, what was the pinnacle of your time during Red Bull? Uh, for me, I think winning in Indianapolis was, uh, it was, it was unexpected for me. It was a, it was a hard week. Um, we had a bunch of challenges prior to the, the race week starting, uh, and you know, we were at that point, we were underdogs for the world championship. We were third and a bunch of things had to have, basically I had to crush Matt Hall and Martin Zonka to get back into the, into the, the world championship picture anyway. Uh, 
And we did that. Like those guys had bad races. I went on to just, again, get in the groove. It was one of those things. It was just a magical day. And I, I've watched uh, Indianapolis and Formula One since I was a kid. It just captivated me. And uh, I love history, history of the military and sports and, and golf and Formula One and even and aerobatic flying. And so when I – Pablo always laughs at me because he's like, you were crying. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this picture of me crying like a baby uh, that – thanks Red Bull. They had a camera in my face because I was like, man, because my dad died 20 years ago. And you know he didn't know that any of this was going to happen. But yeah. he, you know, he saw me win the Nationals, which was a very cool thing. But I sat there and I'm like, man, as an American, I just won an iconic race at America's most iconic racetrack. Yeah. It was an overwhelming thing. And so it's one of those things that you, nobody can ever take away from you. And uh, so I think when I look back at Red Bull, that, that was a pretty magical day. That's, that's so cool. The, uh, it lends well into, I mean, probably the best day of your life was May 25th, plus or minus 2019. Yeah, a couple, couple days. What did I do that day? I don't remember. Yeah, I can't remember. Were you flying in the backseat of an 810 or? No, yeah, it was something. It was yeah. kind of pointy. There was this funny looking guy flying it. I don't remember his name. John something. Yeah, something or other, right? has been. He's Co- gone. Yeah, call sign rain. Yeah. I think he flies big airliners today or something like that. Yeah, just just not the same. No, the <laughs> really cool. I mean, for me, it was awesome going to Indy for the Indy 500 a few months later, and then linking up with you and be able to fly with you in the backseat of the F 16. The have you fly, was that your first time in the backseat or did you? It, so I mean, man. As an honorary Blue Angel, what I'm about to say might get my honorary status revoked. But um, I've I've had the honor of flying with the Blues. Uh, but flying in an F-16 with you doing BFM was <laughs> an absolute – like it was the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. It was uh, like it was like people don't realize they're, they're like how was your F-16 ride? Like, it was crazy. We like, people are like, well, what was it like? I said, well, it felt like I was in a washing machine for like 20 minutes. And uh, it was awesome. It was sick. Well, you know, like I had a blast because I, I mean, it's so much fun, I think, to share aviation and share like your plane with another aviator who get you know, who gets it. And so not that uh, I've had people in the backseat who didn't get it, but it was really cool to have someone who who definitely did get it. And as we went out there, we you know put the F sixteen through its paces, and then coming back and letting you fly it, you know, fly it around. Because um, the side sticks a little bit different, right? Yeah, I fly it around not very well, I might add. <laughs> but please don't ever show that picture of me trying to do a four point roll in your jet. By the way, the, that I still terrible. have the video. It could be a good primer for this uh, this podcast, or maybe yeah, afterwards. Thanks yeah. a lot. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Was that a four point roll or an eight point roll? I can't really remember or tell because it was kind of blended. Um, I mean, to your credit, I'll give you, it did have a centerline tank on it, which did make it a little more sluggish. Yeah, that was what's wrong with it. I knew yeah, there was a problem yeah. with the plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all the other F 16s I flew, they were way better yeah, yeah. than the one that we were in. I mean, I never had a problem with that, but I get it. It was like the first time you did that. So, yeah, fair enough. 
Yeah, but I was helping you on the one that you were doing. <laughs> I was, I, it was a, it was a lot of coaching from the back seat. I really do appreciate yeah, that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I was. Uh, li- li- man, it was the the amount of thrust on takeoff was just it's indescribable, right? <laughs> it's so fun, and um, I'm a I'm a single seat single engine guy, and the the F sixteen, it just like. I don't know. It almost seems like they started with the pilot and they built yeah. the airplane around it, right? It's just, it's still today an airplane that looks futuristic to me. Now it's what, 30 years old, right? Yeah, it's crazy. They just keep making them and they're going to keep improving it, which is awesome. But it, I mean, it kind of ties too, right? To the, the extra, you know, like all, all of that, like being single seat. I mean, I know they're two seat yeah. variants and things like that, but when you go out to an air show, you're flying Red Bull. I mean, it's just you and the machine strapped in there. I don't think the F-16 could do 90 degrees per second in the vertical. It's going a little too fast. Yeah. You would just be crushing people at BFM if you were able to Oh, my to God. Do, could you imagine? Just turn and point and shoot wherever you want. <laughs> kind of like a hornet. But uh, no, that was that was a really cool. And for me, I mean, that was, that was pretty much it. I think, you know, I flew the F-16 the next day in the Indy 500. And I did one more F-16 flight back at Shaw, like a demo farewell. So Is, yeah. that's it really. Yeah. Huh? So it was really cool to kind of be able to wow. round that out. Okay. Yeah. Share it with, some, again, one of the okayest Man. pilots I know. <laughs> that was, it was a, it was a magical day and we got so many amazing pictures. It's really, and oh, by the way, my screenshot as I'm looking at it on our computer right now is me sitting in the back of the airplane with you. That's awesome. and uh, and uh, and yeah, it's that's and and it's funny and and as you know, Brian Bishop, who was the commander of the Thunderbirds and uh, a two star in the Air Force, works with me, and so we're always in the same office. And every and clearly, he's an F sixteen son. And every time he walks in the office, I'm like, Brian, did I tell you that I flew an F sixteen? He's like, No, I never heard that. I'm like, Yeah, yeah I flew an F sixteen. That's a picture. Of, he's like, No, really, is it? I'm like. Yeah, that's me in there. It's like I would never know. I had a screenshot. <laughs> yeah, I edited that and screenshot it. It was awesome. <laughs> no, I, uh, Mike, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat here tonight. Before we part ways, is there anything you'd like to say to the listeners? Advice, tips, tricks for life, or whatever it might be. It could be short term, could be long term. You're you're wise I, beyond I, your I, years. Listen, I, I am not wise beyond my years. I don't know if you. Uh, not sure I have anything of wisdom to say, but other than like the people that are clearly listening to this podcast know you, probably know me as you know passionate people that that really have enjoyed doing something that we love so much, and for those people to go out there and if they're contemplating what's my next step in life, as you said earlier, just go do it. Just go take it and never look back. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a perfect way to end this. Just again, sage advice from Michael Goulian. Love you, brother. Yeah, thanks for joining here. I really do appreciate you taking the time. This has been awesome catching up and just chatting and getting a little bit of your story out there because I know people are really going to enjoy it. And just all the stuff you have accomplished and all the things you keep doing in life it's an inspiration, and I'm very fortunate to, to call you a friend and be able to spend time with you and uh, pick your brain from time to time. You as well, brother. Thank you for having me on here. Absolutely. 
Well, thanks for listening to today's podcast. We'll be back in two weeks. But until next time, don't bring it weak. The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain.